Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Despite all his smear campaigns and insults, Erdogan did not get the result he expected. Nobody should get excited, but a fate accomplished. Turkey appears to be headed for a presidential runoff that could put an end to type Erdogan's 20 years in power. We'll go to Istanbul for the latest. Then a ceasefire has been reached in Gaza after Israel killed 33 Palestinians over five days. The ceasefire is good for us. We can return to life, fishing, working, and breathing again. We can move in and out and try to make a living from fishing and to move around without being harassed. The ceasefire in Gaza comes as Palestinians mark the 75th anniversary of what they call the Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe. When over 700,000 Palestinians fled or were violently expelled from their homes in 1948 when Israel was founded. We'll speak to two Palestinians who've traveled to New York as the United Nations today officially commemorates the Nakba for the first time. We'll also speak with Peter Beiner of Jewish Currents. There are powerful forces in this Israeli government that would like to try to bring about another mass expulsion. A whole series of ministers in this Israeli government have talked favorably about the idea of a lo- an effort to remove large numbers of Palestinians from the West Bank or even from Israel proper. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Turkey, the closely watched election that will determine whether President Recep Tayyip Erdogan will remain in power appears headed to a May 28th runoff, as Erdogan fell just short of the 50 percent of votes needed to win outright. Erdogan's two-decade-long grip on power was challenged by the leading opposition candidate, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who vowed closer ties with NATO and the European Union and to reinforce democratic institutions. A third candidate, a right-wing challenger, received about 5 percent of the vote. The election comes at a time when many Turks are grappling with rising living costs and residents in the south of Turkey are still reeling from February's tragic earthquakes. We'll go to Istanbul for the latest. In another highly anticipated election in Thailand, voters decisively rejected the ruling military-backed government, which came to power in a 2014 coup, voting in large numbers for the youth-led reformist opposition Move Forward Party and the populist Thu Thai Party, controlled by the billionaire Shinawatra family. The two parties have agreed to form a coalition with other groups, though they'll have to contend with rules established by the military, which gives the junta significant power. 
This is Move Forward leader Peter Lamjuronarat. The sentiment of the era has changed, and it's right. It was the right timing that uh, people have uh, been through enough of lost decade in the past decade, and today is a new day. Move Forward has vowed to reform Thailand's Les Majeste laws, which saw people arrested and jailed for insulting the monarchy following mass youth-led protests in 2020 calling for reforms to the royal system. Ukraine says at least four people were killed today and a hospital was hit in a Russian missile attack in the Donetsk city of Avdivka. This comes as Ukraine's military said it's made advances in the devastated eastern city of Bakhmut, pushing back Russian forces, though Russia still retains control over the majority of the area. Earlier today, Russia said two senior military officers were killed in the eastern Donetsk region, which is home to Bakhmut. Over the weekend, The Washington Post reported recently leaked U.S. intelligence shows the head of the Russian mercenary Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, offered in January to give Ukraine's military military, the location of Russian troops to attack if it pulled back Ukrainian forces from Bakhmut. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is in the U.K., where the British government pledged long-range attack drones for Kyiv's fight against Russia's invasion. The visit comes as part of a whirlwind European tour over the weekend, where Zelensky met with Pope Francis at the Vatican and Italian leaders in Rome, followed by stops in Germany, which pledged nearly $3 billion in new military aid, and France, which promised more armored tanks. The Israeli army and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza agreed to an Egyptian-brokered ceasefire Saturday after five days of fighting, in which at least 33 Palestinians, including children, were killed. One Israeli was killed. Many Gazans were facing the loss or destruction of their homes after Israel's air raid campaign, as well as the trauma of the attacks. This is a young girl in Gaza. My childhood feelings and dreams were all in this house. I was brought up in this house. I used to have fun, study, and play here, and all my siblings' toys were in it. We lived the most beautiful days of our lives here, but when they destroyed it, we do not know where to go. In the occupied West Bank, three Palestinians were reported killed during Israeli raids in or near Nablus in recent days. This all comes as Palestinians mark the 75th anniversary of what they call the Nakba, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians—over 700,000— were forcibly expelled from their homes before and during the formation of the State of Israel in 1948. In Burma, at least six people were reported dead after a powerful cyclone made landfall on Sunday. Cyclone Mocha is one of the most powerful storms to hit the region. Several hundred Rohingya refugee shelters were torn apart, while the capital of the northwestern Rakhine state was almost completely destroyed. Power and communication lines have been disrupted, with aid workers struggling to reach areas in need. The cyclone also triggered massive floods and landslides in neighboring Bangladesh. In Kenya, the death toll from the starvation cult Good News International Church has risen to 201, many of them children. The apocalyptic cult's leader, Paul McKenzie, is accused of ordering his followers to starve themselves and their children to death. A commission is investigating whether oversight by administrative or intelligence authorities played any role. 
In Guatemala, the prominent investigative newspaper, El Periodico, is closing after months of intensifying harassment and persecution from the right-wing government of President Alejandro Giamate. Founder José Rubén Zamora remains in detention after nearly one year accused of money laundering and other charges that human rights and press freedom groups have denounced as political retaliation over exposés of government corruption. Zamora's trial began earlier this month. Meanwhile, several of El Periodico's journalists and columnists are also being investigated by Guatemalan authorities. The newspaper laid off most of its staff and shut down its print edition in November. In immigration news, government officials confirmed Friday a 17-year-old unaccompanied migrant teen died at a U.S. Health and Human Services facility in Florida earlier this month. Angel Eduardo Mardiaga Espinosa, who is from Honduras, was found unconscious and later pronounced dead at a local hospital. The Honduran government is demanding an investigation into his death. Meanwhile, the teen's mother says she's received no information about the cause of death. Espinosa reportedly had epilepsy. CBS News reports this is the second death of an unaccompanied migrant child under the Biden administration. A four-year-old child from Honduras died in March in HHS custody after being hospitalized for cardiac arrest. That death was not previously reported by government officials. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has come under fire for comments defending white nationalists and the Pentagon's efforts to rid them from its ranks. He made the comments last week while talking to NPR's Alabama-based station WBHM. You mentioned the Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. Tuberville and his team have since unsuccessfully tried to walk back the comments. Tuberville told NBC's Julie Serkin, quote, I look at a white nationalist as a Trump Republican, unquote. Tuberville was already under fire for holding up military nominees over a Pentagon policy which covers paid leave for workers who have to travel out of state to get an abortion. Tuberville also said the fact that a jury found Donald Trump liable for the sexual abuse and defamation of E. Jean Carroll, quote, makes me want to vote for him twice. Unquote. In related news, The Washington Post is reporting suspected Pentagon leaker Jack Teixeira was obsessed with guns and was preparing for a race war. Videos and chat logs show the 21-year-old National Guard member viewed black people, liberals, Jews and LGBT people as enemies and threats he may have to fight. In Buffalo, New York community members and loved ones gathered Sunday to commemorate the victims of last year's massacre at Top Supermarket, in which a white supremacist shot dead 10 black people. Governor Kathy Hochul, Attorney General Letitia James and Senator Chuck Schumer attended the one-year remembrance. North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper vetoed a Republican-led bill banning nearly all abortions after 12 weeks, setting up an likely override vote. Republicans have a supermajority in the North Carolina legislature, but it would only take one defector to keep the veto in place. Governor Cooper signed the veto at an abortion rights rally in Raleigh on Saturday, which 2,000 people attended. This is reproductive rights advocate Janice Robinson speaking. We do not appreciate what the Republicans have done in trying to take away our rights passing this monster bill 
that is going to make it so much harder for women to have access to abortion care. And if they, the legislatures do not uh, sustain this veto, we will definitely make sure that there are people elected that are about protecting women's rights when it comes to the election in 2024. In Texas, a woman was shot dead by her boyfriend after she returned from traveling to Colorado to get an abortion where the procedure remains legal. Abortions are banned in Texas. Police say Harold Thompson, who's been arrested and charged with murdering 26-year-old Gabriela Gonzalez, did not want her to terminate her pregnancy. Florida's education officials blocked dozens of textbooks and forced publishers to edit dozens of others to remove information on racial and social justice issues. This comes as part of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's ongoing campaign criminalizing the teaching of critical race theory, LGBTQ topics and other issues he describes as, quote, woke indoctrination. One middle school textbook no longer includes a section on Black Lives Matter and the police murder of George Floyd. Meanwhile, DeSantis has signed into law a bill that allow health care providers and insurers to deny patient care on the basis of religious or moral beliefs. Human rights advocates say the legislation will lead to more discrimination against LGBTQ people. In San Francisco, the transgender community and loved ones of slain activist Banco Brown are calling for justice for the late 24-year-old black trans man. Brown was shot dead outside of Walgreens by a security guard in April after he allegedly tried to steal snacks from the store. The shooter has not been charged. Banco Brown's loved ones say he suffered from food and housing insecurity in a city known for its vast inequalities. And here in New York, Daniel Penny, the ex-Marine who choked beloved street performer Jordan Neely to death while on the subway, was arraigned Friday on a charge of second-degree manslaughter and freed pending trial. Neely's family blasted the charge as overly lenient for the unprovoked killing in which Penny used a technique known to be lethal. Before he was killed, Jordan Neely was crying out he was hungry and thirsty and may have been suffering a mental health crisis. This is Dante Mills, an attorney for the Neely family. No one on that train asked Jordan, what's wrong? How can I help you? He was choked to death instead. So for everybody saying, I've been on the train and I've been afraid before, and I can't tell you what I would have done in that situation, I'm going to tell you. Ask how you can help. Please. Don't attack. Don't choke. Don't kill. Don't take someone's life. Don't take someone's loved one from them because they're in a bad place. Jordan Neely's funeral is scheduled for Friday in Harlem. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, Turkey appears to be headed for a presidential runoff that could put an end to Tayyip Erdogan's 20 years in power. Back in a minute.
Davka System by 47 Soul. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Turkey's presidential election appears to be headed to a runoff in two weeks. Preliminary results show Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan received 49.4 percent of the vote. His main challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, received just under 45 percent. The two candidates will likely face each other in a second round of voting on May 28th. Klitschdorolu campaigned on a vow to end what he called Erdogan's authoritarian rule. Erdogan has been in power for 20 years, first as prime minister, then as president. On Sunday, Erdogan spoke to a crowd outside the AK party headquarters in Ankara. If the decision of our nation shows that the elections have been completed, then there is no problem. Elections for the lawmakers of the Grand National Assembly of Turkey resulted in our People's Alliance winning the majority. Currently, the majority in the parliament is in our People's Alliance. Our alliance dominates almost all commissions. Therefore, we do not doubt that the choice of our nation, which gave the majority in the parliament to our alliance, will be in favor of trust and stability in the presidential election. Earlier today, Erdogan's challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, said he would prevail in the runoff. Despite all his smear campaigns and insults, Erdogan did not get the result he expected. Nobody should get excited, but a fate accompli. Elections are not won on the balcony. Election data still continues to come in. If our nation decides on a runoff, with our pleasure, we'll definitely win this election in the second round. Everyone will see it. For more, we go to Istanbul, Turkey, where we're joined by Kaya Genç, an award-winning Turkish essayist and historian. He's the author of several books, including most recently The Lion and the Nightingale, A Journey Through Modern Turkey. He's covered the Turkish elections for the London Review of Books. His recent article for The Nation is headlined The Political Aftershock of Turkey's Devastating Earthquake. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Kaya Gench. Uh, can you start off by talking about the significance of this runoff and that it is likely going to a runoff on May 28th? This was a total shock because we were expecting a clear opposition victory. Uh, all the polls were pointing to that direction. And so we were preparing to write the political obituary of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president for two decades. But Erdogan made a stunning comeback. And that was a total blow for people uh, in Istanbul. Istanbul voted uh, predominantly for the opposition. But when you look at the whole country, the whole ballots opened. Now it seems like we've been mistaken in the polls. And uh, Erdogan has a five-point lead. And the third uh, candidate in the presidential uh, race is also a right-wing figure whose supporters are more likely to support Erdogan. So if he gets that 5% as well, it will be an easy, comfortable win for Erdogan uh, for the next elections. But this was a total shock for the Turkish establishment because for months Erdogan was never speaking optimistically about the election results. He was his usual self, bombastic rhetoric, muscular nationalism. But he never said, we're going to win definitely. 
This is what the opposition said. The opposition was very certain that this was the end of Erdogan, that we were getting rid of him in the first round. And so yesterday there was huge disappointment and the supporters of the opposition felt a little bit betrayed because after hours when the first results came, the opposition leaders were nowhere to be seen. They made very brief appearances during the night, but very brief appearances that gave no hope to the voters whatsoever. So this morning we woke up to a very frustrated city. People feel betrayed and fooled by, by the pollsters. Uh, and I don't know if the opposition will gather enough energy to prepare for the runoff in two weeks. So tell us about uh, who the opposition leader is, Kamal Klitschdorolu. Talk about the he, he himself and also the movement that came together to try to defeat Erdogan. Sure. So Kemal Kulishtarolu is an Alevi, um, a short, well-mannered, softly spoken Alevi, a grandfatherly figure who is the anti-Erdogan. He speaks in a very civilized way, he never gets angry, he's very calculating, and he seems a very civilized man. So, And he's the leader of the CHP, the Republican People's Party, which is of course the founder of modern Turkey, a century-long party, a century-old party. And so Kılıçdaroğlu played the role of a mediator, a middleman, and he said, we're going to change the direction of the CHP. We're going to make peace with the religious people. We're going to make peace with the Kurds. We're going to get the support of the nationalists. We are going to be the center piece of the anti-Erdogan movement. And that he did very diligently and for months. So he, he went to, into meetings, he convinced uh, five other opposition parties to form an alliance, and he called it the, the National Alliance. And then he also, support, he also received the support of the Kurds and the far left and the environmentalists. So 13 parties in total supported his bid. So, at the one hand, we have these 13 parties and Kılıçdaroğlu as their candidates, always saying the right things, culturally, politically, saying nothing politically uh, incorrect. And then we had Erdogan and his coalition, which, is, which was a far-right coalition. And we have to be honest, the winner of yesterday's uh, vote was the far-right in Turkey. And so these are different shades of far-right. One party um, called Yeniden Refah, which is a very religious party. Another one, a Kurdish religious party. So we thought that Kılıçdaroğlu, a Biden-like figure, white-haired, a bit boring, but a peacemaker, would steal the vote from the extremities of Turkish politics. But we were very badly mistaken. This was a huge win for the for the uh, extreme move, extremist movements. And uh, people, when Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, 
uh, announced his bid uh, in March. Some people said this man will never do the job, he, he will not win because we need someone as tall and angry and um, rabble-rousing as Erdogan to beat him. But the opposition party, the CHP, said no, we'll be very calm, this is the man. And now I think the people who opposed Kılıçdaroğlu's candidacy, maybe in two weeks, will say we were proven right. We need someone a bit more like Erdogan to beat Erdogan. So now the opposition, unfortunately, will spend the next few weeks, I think, debating this issue. Did we pick the right candidate? What could we do right? What, uh, what did we do wrong? Of course, these will uh, help little to win the second round for them. So this will be a frustrating two weeks for the opposition. And Erdogan now has the full winds of the Turkish political system um, in his sails. And he made a speech yesterday. He made it clear that this was a definite win for him. But he fell short of announcing a victory in the first round. So he played his cards right. Uh, three years ago, in the mayoral elections in Istanbul, the, the, lead, the, the, the candidate that he picked for Istanbul just rushed to the cameras and said, we won in the first round. And then the opposition candidate, uh, the mayoral candidate for Istanbul, won a few hours later. So Erdogan didn't make this mistake. He didn't rush things. Uh, and he seemed confident that he'll win the elections in the second round. So the problem is... Kılıçdaroğlu was 100% confident that he would win in the first round and how will he be able to explain to his voters that he made a miscalculation and that he can win certainly, clearly, definitely in the second round. Given his authoritarian rule, Erdogan, his enormous power that he's gained over 20 years, do you believe the results of the election? That's number one. And Talk about the crisis of the economy in Turkey, not to mention uh, the devastation of the earthquakes in February and now how that affected people and how people in Turkey are feeling right now. Yes. So, yes, so these two questions are actually related. Erdogan has a huge control of the Turkish media. So if you look at CNN's Turkish edition, it's 24 hours Erdogan propaganda. If you look at most mainstream channels, 24 hour Erdogan propaganda. So his authoritarian control over the Turkish media. You look at TRT World, for example, you look at all different channels. It's all about Erdogan's rhetoric. And what is Erdogan's rhetoric so far for the past two months? It was this, are the opposition parties are organized, curated, if you will, by Joe Biden, by the U.S. imperialist system. So he used this very anti-imperialist rhetoric. And he said any vote for the CHP, the founder of the Turkish Republic, was a vote for Joe Biden. So he used this, um, honestly, extra ex eccentric rhetoric very carefully. And... Um, 
thanks to his authoritarian control over the media, when opposition candidates were attacked with stones during their campaigning in different Anatolian cities, all these TV channels were saying these are self-organized attacks, the opposition parties stoned themselves, this is a whole drama, This is these are all scenarios implemented by Biden, by the Pentagon. And when Turkish TV channels interviewed people on the streets, people were saying exactly the same things. So this was an incredible example of how media could form public opinion in Turkey. And as I've been saying, it's 85, more than 85% of Turkish media under Erdogan's control. So they really managed the whole discourse very well. And to the second question, the economic crisis in February 6, when the earthquakes killed more than 50,000 people in Syria and Turkey, with a bill of more than 100 billion dollars, Turkey was already in deep trouble. The inflation had soared, the Turkish lira had melted against the dollar for months, and so Turkey was really in a very difficult position. But Erdogan said, uh, using his incredible media dominance, that we are the builders, they are the critics, they are the talkers, we are the builders, and we will use this huge crisis as a great chance to rebuild Turkey. So he started using the rebuild rhetoric, and he said, who has built stuff for you throughout the 20th century? The Turkish right-wing parties did. And who is the representative of the Turkish right-wing legacy now? It's me and my coalition partners. Okay, maybe we are a bit far to, far to the right of the equation, but trust us, we are the builders, we'll rebuild those houses, but we will not do that for free. You will have to pay for us. We'll give you credit, uh, which will help you pay for your new houses. And of course, those houses were destroyed because of irregularities in the in the whole construction system and Erdogan took no responsibility whatsoever he said those buildings are gone drink a glass of cold water and come back to me vote for me and let's play this whole game again and I was listening to lots of supporters of Erdogan in the earthquake hit cities 11 of them and people were saying the opposition promises to build housing for us for free. But there is no free lunch on earth. We don't believe them. We, we, we trust Erdogan because in a capitalist system, we will have to pay for this. So it is a very strange um, scenario where the people most violently affected by the earthquake were most passionately supporting the government that was responsible for the toll, I think, and all the experts think like that. But they were saying, we want to do this again, we want new houses, you are the only one who can deliver. So Erdogan's messages, the answer to this crisis, this example of crisis capitalism, will help us rebuild this country, will help and live in the economy. So the, the way out of this crisis is rebuilding these 11 cities. 
And that's the message he tried to sell, and that's the message he sold much to our dismay. Hi again, I want to thank you so much for being with us, award-winning Turkish essayist and historian, author of several books, including the most recent, The Lion and the Nightingale, A Journey Through Modern Turkey. Uh, he covered the Turkish elections for the London Review of Books, and we'll link to your article in The Nation, The Political Aftershock of Turkey's Devastating Earthquake. Coming up, a ceasefire has been reached in Gaza after Israel called 33 Palestinians over five days. The ceasefire comes as Palestinians mark the 75th anniversary of what they call the Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe, when over 700,000 Palestinians fled or were violently expelled from their homes in 1948, when Israel was founded. Stay with us. By Clarissa Bittard. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to the occupied Palestinian territories. On Saturday, the Israeli army and the militant group Islamic Jihad agreed to an Egyptian-brokered ceasefire following five days of fighting in Gaza, which has been under an Israeli blockade for the past 16 years. Prior to the ceasefire, Israeli forces killed 33 Palestinians in Gaza, including women and children, and at least 147 Palestinians were injured. Meanwhile, Palestinian militants fired over a 1,000 rockets into Israel, killing two people, an Israeli woman and a Palestinian man from Gaza working in Israel. The latest violence began Tuesday when Israel brokered, broke a previous ceasefire. This all comes as Palestinians across the globe are marking today the 75th anniversary of what they call the Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe, when well over 700,000 Palestinians fled or were violently expelled from their homes in 1948 when Israel was founded. For the first time, the United Nations is holding a high-level special meeting to commemorate the Nakba today. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Democratic Congressmember Rashida Tlaib introduced a resolution last week to recognize what she calls the ongoing Nakba and the rights of Palestinian refugees. We're joined by three guests. Peter Beinert is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. His recent piece is headlined, Could Israel Carry Out Another Nakba? He's a professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, CUNY. 
Also with us, Saleh Hijazi, part of the Palestinian Boycott National Committee. He's the former deputy regional director for the Middle East at Amnesty International. He was a key researcher on their report, Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinians. He's visiting New York from Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. Munir Nuseba is also with us, a human rights lawyer and director of Al-Quds Human Rights Clinic in Jerusalem. Salah and Munir both arrived in New York on Sunday to attend today's meeting at the United Nations on the Nakba. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! I want to start um, with uh, Professor Munir Nisaiba. If you can talk about the Egyptian-brokered ceasefire um, and what this violence of the last weeks has meant. Um, the violence of the last week uh, is the unfortunate continuation of uh, impunity in Israel. Uh, over the past few decades, since the Nakba, actually, until the current day, uh, uh, Israel has been able to uh, uh, sustain an apartheid regime uh, in Palestine and uh, uh, close Gaza in, in, in a siege, uh, prevent people from moving, prevent goods from moving, uh, but also uh, uh, keep the occupation running, keep uh, 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 the displacement and the demolition and the ongoing Nakba, which you mentioned earlier in your uh, introduction. Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, continue with a policy of assassinations, uh, uh, of uh, uh, imprisonment, arbitrary imprisonment. And all of these uh, elements um, have uh, uh, continue causing uh, uh, these uh, um, uh, small armed conflicts that happen every now and then. Um, but the problem uh, is that uh, with impunity, with no... Uh, punishment for uh, those who perpetrate war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, we can only expect these uh, events to uh, continue and to come back again and again and again. Yes, every time there is uh, an escalation uh, like this one, uh, there will be uh, intervention uh, from neighboring countries like Egypt to stop, uh, 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 you know, stop this uh, type of, uh, uh, of uh, military uh, conflict. However, uh, the main problems remain. Gaza is still uh, under siege uh, and collective punishment of every person who lives in there and every person who also lives outside and who wants to visit Gaza. Uh, uh, the West Bank is still uh, uh, occupied. The Israeli regime is applying um, uh, apartheid in, uh, the, in all of the territory of, of Palestine, Israel. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, while I can say that we're comfortable and happy that uh, uh, the military action has stopped. Uh, I would say that there is, you know, um, th this might come back in the future as long as there are no fundamental uh, remedies for the current situation. In 2018, I interviewed Mahmoud Salah, a Nakba survivor who was forced out of his home village of Sara in 1948. At the time he spoke to us, he was 86 years old. He was born in a village just outside Jerusalem that was bombed and invaded when he was a teenager in 1948. He described how his family sought refuge in what's now the West Bank. 
He slept in caves, under trees, moving from refugee camp to refugee camp before the U.N. eventually sent him on a ship to South America, to Venezuela. Then he went to Colombia. I spoke to him in Chicago, where he lived, and I asked him what that word Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe, means to him. Nakba means it is a disaster of my heart, a disaster of my family, a disaster of my soul, a disaster of my, my country, because it is the, the Nakba, it is the history of my, of my, of my country, of my grandfather, grandmother, and the disaster of my even faith, my religion. My, my, my school, it was destroyed. The Nakba, it is, it is a Nakba, it is, it is a word, it is a very, very strange word, a hard word. It is still in my heart, and I give it to my sons. I give it to my everybody I know from the family. Salah Hijazi, um, if you could talk about the significance of today at the United Nations, the first time they will commemorate the Nakba, um, and also talk about your previous work at Amnesty International, when last year, for the first time, they talked about um, Israel as an apartheid state. Yes. So— uh Actually, the two, both the UN commemorating the Nakba for the first time and Amnesty International coming and recognizing that uh, the regime that Israel imposes on Palestinians is that of apartheid, is a regime that treats Palestinians as an inferior racial group and imposes a system of oppression and domination uh, on them with the intention of creating a Jewish supremacist a state uh, uh, with as little Palestinians, preferably no Palestinians, uh, within uh, the land of Palestine. Both these are coming to recognize what Palestinians have been saying for many, many years. It's a recognition of the Palestinian narrative that in 1948, uh, we were victims of a planned ethnic cleansing uh, of the indigenous population, the Palestinians in Palestine, and that uh, uh, that event in 1948 continues until today, that we're still facing the same systematic dispossession, displacement, systematic killing. You know, you were mentioning Gaza and the attack on Gaza recently. This is the sixth attack uh, of such uh, uh, gravity against Gaza in uh, since the blockade, the criminal blockade that was imposed on the Gaza Strip since 2007. Uh, last year, according to the UN, over the last 12 months, we've seen the uh, sharpest rise in the killing of Palestinians in uh, the occupied West Bank, uh, including many, many children. Uh, so uh, these are all uh, symptoms of, of this system uh, of uh, oppression and domination of forcible displacement. Now, they are late, but they're, of course, uh, very welcome, though uh, a recognition is not enough. Uh, what we need is to tackle the root causes of what is happening. We need the dismantling of this system of oppression and domination. The UN has a responsibility. Uh, it has committed itself 
to uh, addressing the question of Palestine, but it only does that in in a kind of a partial way, in a humanitarian way. We need a political addressing of the situation in Palestine. Uh, We need a dismantling of settler colonialism and apartheid, Zionist settler colonialism and apartheid. And it starts with uh, ending uh, complicity. Uh, when it comes to states, institutions, corporations, uh, to uh, isolate apartheid regimes, it's similar, very similar to uh, what happened in Southern Africa uh, when the world stood up uh, to the apartheid uh, regimes that were there in Namibia, in South Africa, and in Zimbabwe, uh, isolated these regimes, imposed boycotts and sanctions against them. Uh, uh, this is what we want the world to do. Uh, uh, we want the UN to go down uh, that route of action. And we want also individual states uh, to also end their complicity uh, with the system of oppression and domination uh, in in Palestine. Palestinian-American Congress member Rashida Tlaib, who represents Detroit, recently introduced a a resolution to recognize the Nakba. The resolution reads, quote, the Nakba is not only a historical event, but also an ongoing process characterized by Israel's separate and unequal laws and policies towards Palestinians, including the destruction of Palestinian homes, the construction expansion of illegal settlements, and Israel's confinement of Palestinians to ever-shrinking areas of land, she writes. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy attempted to quash a planned event by Tlaib commemorating the Nakba by preventing it from going ahead in the U.S. Capitol. Instead, she hosted the event event in a packed Senate committee room filled with Palestinian rights supporters. The group Democratic Majority for Israel tweeted in response, quote, the root of the catastrophe, the Arab world refused to accept the U.N. plan for a Jewish and Arab state in what was left of the U.K.'s Palestine mandate after Jordan's creation. Instead, five Arab armies invaded Israel, attempting to destroy it and push the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea, they said. I wanted to bring Peter Beinart into this conversation. Um, Peter is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. Um, you recently wrote a piece, Could Israel Carry Out Another Nakba? First, could you respond um, to both the resolution, what's happening in Israel, um, as well as that response I just read, and then talk about what you suggest in your piece, Could Israel Carry Out Another Nakba, where you say expulsionist sentiment is common in Israeli society and politics. To ignore the warning signs is to abdicate responsibility, you write. Peter. Sure. I think the fact that there is even a conversation, an argument about the Nakba taking place in Washington is itself progress. And it it owes a great deal to the figure of Rashida Tlaib, who I think is the first American politician in a long time, who's been willing to really make an effort to, 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 to get this commemorated. So it requires people like Kevin McCarthy and groups like Democratic Majority Israel for Israel to have to argue back and try to cancel these events, which in the past they didn't even need to do. Um, and she found an important ally in Bernie Sanders, who's the one who allowed her to use that room in the Senate. The, the problem with trying to kind of blame Palestinians for their own expulsion and claim it was only a result of Arab armies attacking Israel is, first of all, that a significant number of the roughly 750,000 Palestinians who were expelled or fled in fear between 1947 and 1949 did so before the Arab armies attacked, before Israel declared independence in May 1948. 
and and also because these expulsions didn't end when the war ended. If you read, um, if you can just read Israeli historians like Benny Morris in his book Israel's Border Wars, he talks about how Israel continued expulsions, albeit at a smaller scale through into the 1950s, then Israel expelled a large number of Palestinians again in 1967. So the point of my essay is that while there have been fluctuations in the pace at which Palestinians have been expelled, this has been a continuous process since Israel's creation because Palestinians have been a problem for Israel. Um, and the basic guiding notion in Israeli politics has been you want to control as much land as possible with as few Palestinians as possible. What I think may be different and worrying about this moment is that you have a critical mass of people in this Israeli government who are on the record as suggesting that they would like to find some way of, of convincing or coercing large numbers of Palestinians to leave the West Bank, if not Israel proper. It starts with Betzalel Smotrich, the finance minister who is in charge of civil administration, who wrote very explicitly in 2017, essentially, that Palestinians should be given the choice either to accept living under Israeli control without basic rights or to leave. Itamar Ben-Gavir also has spoken in these terms, but some of the Likud ministers as well. You have Galant, the defense minister, uh, Sahi Negbi, the national security advisor, uh, Avi Dichter, the agricultural minister, former head of Shin Bet, the domestic security agency. All of them have essentially suggested, ironically, they don't deny that the Nakba took place in 1948. They acknowledge it and say that it may need to happen Again, and I think that if Israel, Israel feels utter impunity from the United States and from the rest of the world, it makes it more likely, especially in a context of rising Palestinian armed resistance in the West Bank, that we could we could get to that terrible moment. You also uh, did wrote a piece on your Substack um, titled "Is Denying the Nakba Anti-Semitism?" Explain what you mean. Well, that was a play on a speech that Yair Lapid made when he essentially said that anti-Semitism, any form of racism should be considered anti-Semitism. I, I think the point that I've tried to make in several, some of my writing is there's, a, to me, a very profound uh, irony and tragic irony in the fact that Jews, who we know deeply that preserving memory is the way you maintain a people. The reason that the Jewish people has survived in large measure is because we tell the stories of our history and we preserve a national memory. So when Jewish leaders in Israel or the United States essentially tell Palestinians to forget the Nakba, to get over it, what they are doing is not making a move. That is not a suggestion of peace. That is really a proposal of extinction. Because if you tell a people to forget its history, you are really inviting it to cease to exist. And that's what I find as a Jew so disturbing about this continual Nakba denial that we see in a mainstream American Jewish organization. Um, I want to uh, bring Salah Nijazi and um, Professor Munir Nisaiba back into this conversation. Professor Nisaiba, as you come to the U.N. today, what do you think actually needs to happen and the role of the United Nations in this? The United Nations had an important role in creating the Nakba, unfortunately. Back in 1947, the United Nations um, um, General Assembly recommended the partition of Palestine into uh, two states, responding uh, apparently to the uh, political atmosphere that uh, the United Kingdom, the colonial power present in Palestine at the time, 
responding to the atmosphere that it created. Uh, after that, uh, the Nakba happened, and Israel displaced 80 percent of the overwhelming, uh, you know, of the of the Palestinian population that lived in the area that um, uh, it conquered uh, during that war. Um, these Palestinians have become uh, refugees in different refugee camps in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Jordan, in in, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria, and and other places around the world. Uh, the General Assembly uh, has uh, re uh, resolved already uh, back in 1948 in a resolution that uh, the Palestinian refugees should have the right to return. Um, and it has been um, keeping this uh, resolution uh, and calling for it uh, continuously since then. Uh, however, um, and there have been many other resolutions that... Um, contributed to uh, calling for different Palestinian rights. We have a lot of literature, a lot of resolutions uh, from the General Assembly, some resolutions from the Security Council uh, that push for uh, uh, Palestinian rights. However, um, the, we haven't been able to uh, see actual measures taken against Israel in order to force uh, Israel to abide by uh, international law and, uh, and UN resolutions. And so what we expect and what we hope is that by commemorating the Nakba and by uh, uh, looking and responding to the work of the human rights uh, lawyers and activists, but also the UN special rapporteurs who are uh, uh, closely documenting um, the situation in, in Palestine, that the UN would start taking measures at a certain point, measures that can be translated uh, uh, into uh, uh, into policies uh, that are taken both by the UN but also by individual states. This has been missing. Uh, the UN has been also involved in this uh, long, uh, uh, never-ending uh, so-called peace process that started uh, back in nineteen uh, uh, in the early nineties. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it's. It is evident to us now that this peace process is just uh, serving as a drug for everyone. Everybody is saying, ah, there's a peace process uh, happening now. We don't need to uh, do any intervention. Let's invite all the parties to sit on a table. The parties have sat on tables for very long periods of time. They haven't gotten anywhere. Uh, there is a colonial project that is continuing to um, uh, expand, uh, to build uh, Jewish-only settlements, to uh, implement an apartheid regime uh, between the Jordan River and uh, and the Mediterranean Sea. And this needs to end. Um, so uh, you cannot convince them to uh, uh, give up supremacy only on a negotiating table. Negotiating tables, unfortunately, are not enough for that. What we actually need is concrete actions by the United Nations and by member states of the United Nations, by the International Criminal Court, which has jurisdiction over uh, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza Strip, uh, which can start uh, acting. So we need this. We need action. Let me ask Salah Hijazi, the Israeli Diaspora Affairs and Combating Anti-Semitism Minister, Amachai Chikli, recently sent a letter to the United Nations demanding that Francesca Abanesi, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, be fired claiming she continues to spew hatred, anti-Semitism, and incite violence. Can you talk about how Israel continues to challenge the U.N. and its decisions today? 
Yes, it's um, uh, uh, both by using these tactics uh, of uh, accu- accusations of uh, anti-Semitism uh, against uh, UN mechanisms like the Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in the Occupied Territories, now Francesca Albanese, but before it, Professor Michael Link, and before it, Professor Richard Falk, and before it, Judge uh, 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 Dugard, John Dugard. Uh, it does so against uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International when they come out with uh, detailed uh, documentation uh, and legal analysis uh, of the situation in uh, Palestine as that of apartheid, which is a crime against humanity uh, that both states and the United Nations have a responsibility and obligation uh, to tackle. It does so against, for example, uh, Palestinian uh, human rights defenders and organizations accusing them uh, of anti-Semitism because of legitimate, uh, factual uh, uh, criticism, factually based uh, criticism of uh, Israel's uh, uh, policies of uh, systematic human rights violations, or when it comes to Palestinians like us in civil society, uh, also accusations of uh, 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 terrorism, uh, that uh, whenever there is criticism of Israel, it is either anti-Semitic or it is supportive of terrorism. And I think this this tactic needs, uh, it is exposed. Uh, it's, in my view, uh, no longer uh, working. And uh, that uh, the United Nations, uh, at the highest level, from the Secretary General, uh, including to member states, should really stand firm uh, against these tactics. They should stand firm in supporting the mechanisms that are there like the special rapporteurs, uh, Francesca Albanese being one of them, but there are also others that come out and uh, produce documentation reports uh, exposing Israel's human rights violations. Uh, It's just stand firm uh, with the International Criminal Court in carrying out this open investigation that has been open for uh, uh, a, a long time without any kind of movement, as opposed to then uh, the prosecutor moving on other situations very quickly uh, when there are evidence produced of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, so uh, I think in response to this, uh, that, um, uh, you know, let me say, Palestine is the litmus test of this international world order of the rule of law, uh, of human rights, of uh, international law. Uh, if the world fails Palestine by giving in into these uh, scare bullying tactics by uh, by Israel, uh, then it has failed uh, in many many other places around the world. Uh, if international law does not stand in Israel in, in in Palestine and for Palestinians, if the p- crimes of apartheid, uh, if systematic human rights violations are allowed to continue without any, any kind of accountability, then they can continue without any kind of accountability anywhere around the. So really, I think it is that uh, the international community uh, needs to stand uh, for the rights of Palestinians, but it also, when it does so, it does so stand for uh, this uh, international uh, order that is the rule-based international uh, law-based world order. Finally, Peter Beinart, you did not always hold the views you have. Um, uh, You have not always been as critical of Israel as you are today. We actually only have 30 seconds. But if you could explain what changed you. 
I think it was just going and seeing for myself. I think like many American Jews, I had been to Israel many times and I still feel a great sense of connection and, and affection for, uh, for Israeli Jews, many of some of whom are my friend, many friends and family. But when I, when I first, too late in life, but, uh, uh, started to actually see some realities uh, on the West Bank of Palestinian existence, it just became, it began a process for me of realizing that for me as someone who believes in liberal democracy and equality under the law and believes in Jewish ideals as I understand them, this was something, not something I could support. Peter Beinart, we want to thank you for being with us, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, Saleh Hijazi of the Palestinian Boycott National Committee, formerly with Amnesty International, and Munir Nasaiba, director of Human Rights Clinic at Al-Quds University in Jerusalem, here for what the U.N. is calling Nakba Day. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.